hear the softly spoken magic spell. Welcome to Sync Floyd, the podcast where we watch every movie ever made to see if it syncs up with Pink Floyd's 1973 magnum opus, The Dark Side of the Moon. My name is Gareth Blackler, and this week we've got a very special episode for you guys. I reached out to David L.A., who is a professor of psychology and a neuroscientist at the University of Sydney, and I asked him, what is a sync? What, why does the human brain think it can see a connection between Jaws and Dark Side of the Moon, or much of the penguins and Dark Side of the Moon? What's going on here? And he was incredibly kind enough to grant us an interview. So as a hundred-ish episode treat, we've lost count. We're going to play you that interview. It's a delight. He's such a cool guy. And he's got a story about backmasking that'll blow your mind. There's something trending that I'm not aware of. <laughs> it's, I don't think it's trending. It's something that I think it was in the 90s. Somebody discovered, well, discovered, um, came up with a theory that um, Pink Floyd, the rock band, um, uh, yeah. Their album would uh, Dark Side of the Moon. If you played it while watching The Wizard of Oz on mute, you would end up seeing things coinciding, like syncing together. Right. And it's a rumor that has blown up. It's kept going. And (laughs) we have taken that and we're doing it with every other movie. We're going to eventually do Dark Side of the um, Wizard Mm -hmm. of Oz. But we're doing it good and bad movies across the game. And yeah, so my... I guess we're kind of cracking into it. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. So my... Really, I'm coming to you to ask very politely, why am I doing this? What's going on in my head? But first, first, um, could you just tell the listeners about yourself and your research? So my name is David L.A. I'm a professor in the School of Psychology at the University of Sydney. And I've had a long career, long interest in um, how the senses work together, how vision and sound come together, also touch and and, and other things, how that's all fused into the brain so that we end up with a rich sort of representation, a perception of the world that's out there. Speaking of audio and visual, can you just kind of tell us, like, how do those connect, if if that's not too big a question? you have actually asked a very big question. But, oh, sorry. I mean, but the basic point, I suppose, is that, you know, things that happen out in the world may maybe create vision and sound at the same time. So if you're standing on the side of the road, uh, cars go past, that's a visual image flashing past, but there's the sound of the car. And actually, by putting sound and vision together, we actually get a more precise sort of representation of what's out there. Okay. So, for instance, if, if a car... Um, zoomed past me but it was making the complete wrong sound would i still perceive it as a threat the same way or would would it like be too confused to be threatened that's actually a very good question i i remember being completely thrown once um i was in china for a conference mm. and i was standing on the side of the road and everyone was riding these electric scooters that made no noise and i was so used to approaching the the curbside ready to cross and already hearing the traffic before i even looked and so i, I found myself wanting to step off because it couldn't hear any noise but zoom, they'd go flying past and whoa oh. you know western tourists nearly died you know yeah 
Interesting. So doing this show, we've put ourselves in a situation um, where we don't have the audio stimulus for these movies. We've got these movies completely on mute and just blasting over them as a 1973 rock album. And then what is happening is I guess our brains start to fill in the gaps there and try to connect those. And is that, is that a normal human thing? <laughs> well, I'd say two interesting points here. One is that mm. you have, um, you have a whole lot of visual events going on on the movie. So, so dynamic changes and flashes and things are happening and they're quite unrelated to the dynamics and changes in the sound, but just two randomly unrelated processes are going to coincide once in a while. So I think just by chance, you're going to get some sort of apparent synchrony when something flashed just as a, you know, someone struck a drum or something. I don't know. So, you know, partly it's just going to be that random coincidence. And, you know, we're all gullible. We're all biased to seek confirmation. Mm -hmm. And if someone says to you, Oh, are you seeing uh, this correlated with that, the movie with the soundtrack? And you go, um, oh, yeah, there was one. And, and, oh, there was another one. Yeah, I think I am. So we're all confirmation driven. We'll have a big bias there, right? And, mm. and we tend to ignore the fact that 90% of the, that the sound and the vision was mismatched. You know, we just ignore that. The other thing I should say, too, you hit upon a very good point. You said maybe we're just, um, um, did you say interpreting or filling in the blanks? I think mm. you said. That's actually spot on, too. I mean, the, the brain these days is now seen as a kind of predictive apparatus that instead of just taking in the sensory information, the sound and the vision, it's actually very active in, in, in guessing and interpreting what's going on. And it would rather guess and make a good guess at what's happening than go to all the trouble of processing all the sensory input. It's a kind of a shortcut to keep your brain free to do a lot of other important stuff. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's looking for patterns where there are none. So when you get these random things, unrelated things, it's going to try and find a pattern in there. So you're right on both counts. Partly it's, it's just going to be a random coincidence and we're driven to want to find uh, confirmation bias. And secondly, yeah, the brain's trying to find patterns. It'll, it'll find those for you. Okay. Is there any, um, is there any research into why the brain seeks patterns and like what also what leads like have we evolved to have confirmation bias i don't know so much about the confirmation bias but that's well established in people who study cognitive psychology that, mm. that we're just you know you, you know it's like it's the thing where you go on the internet and you self-diagnose you, you read about some yeah. condition and then you, you google it and you think oh crap you've this and that i've got that i'm pretty sure i've got that symptom too and suddenly you've got some obscure disease that you know affects one in a million people but you're sure you've got it because yeah. you know a doctor comes along and he's he's learned now to, to falsify he says well hang on you haven't got that therefore you don't have this disease it doesn't matter how many you do have you didn't have that essential thing so it's not that you know we don't think like that we just seek mm. confirmation um the other question was there why does the brain predict and guess it's wonderfully economical um mm. if the brain the, the brain's very plastic and stores a lot of information and, and learns a lot of stuff right you have a head full of memories and experiences and it's all guarded in there you've got a lifetime of experience and so you you know, the, the world's not totally random. It's, it's, it tends to repeat. So you've got the experience in your head. So you can basically guess from any context what's about to happen and what's, you know, what's the likely uh, context that you're in. And so rather than just 
you know, clog up your brain full of um, a whole lot of visual processing or sound processing. And that together is about 40% of your brain just doing sound and vision. It's a lot to, to tie up just in, you know, looking out the window. Mm. Whereas if your brain can say, oh, I know what this is, I'm looking out, in my case, through my office window, there's the education building and I can see the gym down there. I don't need to process that in detail. A couple of cues tell me that's what I'm seeing and I can just rely on the memory, not actually you know, um, process all that information anew. It doesn't, it's just a waste of resources. Okay, cool. Um, something you've said about patterns is um, you've done a lot of research into, and I've practiced saying it, I'm going to mess it up anyway, pareidolia? Is that, is that right? Yeah, it's good. <laughs> pareidolia, yeah. Um, I was just wondering if you could tell pareidolia, if you could just tell the listeners a bit about that, because it's fascinating and I feel like every week I'm searching for it when I watch this movie. So pareidolia, that's actually a good example of this sort of brain as a as a, a pattern seeker, mm. as a predictor. So, you know, often what happens is, is when you look at some random pattern, the brain will try and see some regularities and pull out some relationships that maybe you, you're not seeing first up. Um, it wants to find patterns where there are none. So often, you know, someone will say to you, oh, look at those clouds up there. I can see a rabbit. And you go, what? I can't see that. See, yeah, that's like the ears there and that would be its nose. Then you go, oh, yeah, now I'm seeing it. So your friend who saw the rabbit, they've, they've imposed a pattern on essentially an unrelated, you know, object like the cloud. Um, and you can you can sort of see it. You can, you can, once you're prompted, then you'll talk yourself into seeing that. Too. And then you can't not see it, you know what I mean? Um, so that's a kind of pattern interpretation in a, in a random stimulus. Um, and there's also... I mean, there's two parts to that. So pareidolia happens partly because the brain's always trying to interpret. And secondly, it can happen, pareidolia is a little bit different in the sense that it can happen automatically and very, very fast. So there are some of those, if you if you put this into Google, you'll find hundreds of pareidolia images out there. And when you look at them, you can't help but say, oh, my God, that's a face. You see, like, um, you know, there's, there's, there's everything from burnt pieces of toast to woodcuts to things that look like the knots look like eyes and there's a split that looks like a mouth. There's hundreds of them. Once you see them, you can't unsee them. And one of the reasons for that is we we have a big specialised part of the brain that's dedicated to detecting faces because it's so important to us. We're the most social creatures on the, on the planet. We have a whole brain area dedicated to processing faces and it's become really skilled at responding super fast to the presence of a face if it sees two eyes a nose and a mouth just a simple template like a little kid would draw like a smiley face mm. it's like you've got a template like that in your brain and as soon as it's something satisfies that template you know ching your brain starts firing i'm seeing a face and so it's wonderfully efficient and the brain likes to be efficient i already said that before mm. with this pattern thing it's an incredibly efficient way to make sure you never miss seeing a face this simple template but you get the odd you know um false positive it's like oh oops it wasn't really a face i mean it doesn't matter that it's not but it's better that you never miss a face but if someone's sneaking up with their mm. dagger raised ready to stab you or something you need to see faces when they're there and recognise, is that a friend? Is that what are their intentions? Are they happy? Are they sad? Are they healthy? You know, you've got to detect faces and respond to them quickly. So that template is fast, but you get the odd bycatch in there if you if you like. Something you said about how it's a threat or threatened, like it's kind of evolved from that. Do you think we're more likely to experience it when we're in a stressful situation or when we're in something we don't like, or is it just completely random? Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, I think um, the more, 
ambiguous or threatening the situation is think about you know especially you know kids in the dark and they're absolutely you know scared to death there's something there and they start seeing things and imagining things and we've all been probably scared and imagined threats much worse than they are it's not just kids but mm. um yeah so i think i think if you if you were spooked and worried that you would see a face somewhere you'd probably start seeing them everywhere because you've really primed up those neurons that are there to, to detect a face and anything that approximates that's going to send off that hardware firing in your brain so yeah okay yeah i asked that simply i'm trying to figure out if whether i like a movie or dislike a movie whether that like that like stress of having to watch this movie will make me more likely to spot these patterns and these sinks but yeah so it's good to know maybe i should start um making myself scared like put myself in a scary room or a dangerous situation while i'm watching the movie and see if that gets me searching harder yeah it, it may well um if you can recreate that childhood sort of fear you know watching some horror movie late at night yeah um i, I think too if you're really engrossed in the narrative I, I think all of this stuff just bypasses you stories are so engrossing and if it's a great narrative great story and you're engrossed you just you're not going to notice anything you mm. won't notice as random coincidences you wouldn't notice uh you know, cuts that aren't quite uh, smooth or sound that's lagged with vision. I mean, if you're totally engrossed, none of that will ever, I think, reach consciousness, you know. But if you're edgy and looking for those things, you can certainly see them. Well, um, thank you so much. Is there anything you want to tell our listeners about? Any wise wisdom or anything if they want to follow uh, your research? Look, I don't know. I think we've covered a lot there, Gareth. I'm happy just to leave it there. Um, you know, if people are interested in pareidolia, they can hit the internet and find lots of images. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love that kind of plug. Internet. There's also, there. there's also actually relevant to this that just occurred Ooh, to me. I, yeah. I, I went to a scientific conference once uh, uh, some years ago and a colleague was telling me, you know, that, that business about um, you play a song backwards and you get mm. messages, usually from the devil, usually saying, you know, take drugs or something. Yeah. So this very sensible scientist guy was telling me, you know, that's a real thing. I'm going, well, from you, I can't believe this. He says, listen to this. He pulled out his laptop and he said, this is such and such a song played backwards. Mm. And underneath, you know, there was this like, you know, bouncing ball following the words along and, and there were these backward masks lyrics like you know worship the devil take more drugs and i thought oh my yeah. god you're right it really does say that then he goes wait watch this and then he replays it with a whole new set of words written underneath and you follow the ball along and oh wait now it's saying that and i suddenly realized this whole backward masking thing it's just so ambiguous yeah and the brain's yeah. desperate to find meaning and, and a pattern that any words prompting you you suddenly you heard them even though they weren't in the music i mean that's it's just crazy, isn't it? But that's how, yeah. how malleable our perceptions can be. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's a million-dollar story. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, oh, wow. I mean, that sums up this whole thing, really. Uh, yeah. Deep yeah. into this podcast. So, so weirdly, yeah. weirdly, that backward masking stuff is kind of true, but only mm. in a trivial sense. It could say almost anything. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Oh, well, thank you so much. Um, thank right. you. Yeah, this is probably the silliest thing you've had to do all day, but thank you no, so I much for the No, I enjoyed it, Gareth. I knew I would. I get questions like this all the time. I've really? done quite a lot of radio and the odd TV spot on this sort of thing. So oh, I was cool. happy to help. What a legend. Thank you so much, David, for being our guest this week and breaking down 
deep into this podcast what we're actually doing, which seems to be heavily confirmation biased. Um, and thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, let us know. Like, maybe in its twilight years, Sink Floyd becomes a scientific research podcast. Like, I'm 100% happy to that with that. Thank you so much for listening. Sink Floyd will be back with a regularly scheduled episode. The Lion King, 1994. Be prepared is all I've got to say about that. I've been Gareth Blackler. Shout out to James Barron. Shout out to David LA. Shout out to the listeners. And we'll see you on the dark side of the moon. On the dark side of the moon. Yeah. That's right. I was here the whole time. Bye.